the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Welcome to In the Word, a ministry of Calvary Chapel of Orlando. We hope that God speaks to you today as we continue our study verse by verse, chapter by chapter through the Bible with Senior Pastor Will Ramirez. Today as we continue our study in the book of 2 Samuel, although Judah accepts David as king, Abner makes Ishbosheth king and starts a civil war. We'll pick it up in 2 Samuel chapter 2 verse 4. Once again that's 2 Samuel chapter 2 verse 4. All right, 2 Samuel chapter 2, 2 Samuel chapter 2. While 1 Samuel was kind of about lessons from the heart, 2 Samuel, it's the same book in a sense that they weren't separated originally. It was one author, one piece originally. So the lessons from the heart are still there, but now we're going to focus pretty much solely on David's heart. And we're going to see him being a man after God's heart. We're going to see what it means to have a heart after God. And God's not done being faithful. Remember, he made a promise to David, and now we're going to see it happen here in verse 4. Verse 4 of 2 Samuel 2, And the men of Judah came, and there they anointed David king over the house of Judah. No big battle with Saul. It's just, boom, he's in the Lord's will, and it happens, right? He didn't have to do anything. He just needed to follow the Lord wherever the Lord would lead him, and God did it in his time. They anointed him to be king over Judah, and it's over. He's king, just like God promised. Now, the reason they anoint the kings, the word anoint means to set apart for special service. In other words, they're coming to David and saying, you're going to have a different role than the rest of us in our community. You're going to be our king. We're going to be your subjects. It's not the relationship we have with you is not going to be like the relationship we have with anyone else. And this action of anointing is communicating that. And that action, it carries weight both ways. It carries the weight of David's new responsibility to be faithful in his position, to serve and lead the people in God's will. And it carries the weight for the people to be submitted to his rule, to be following the Lord as they follow their king. How interesting that David who believed he had no support in his homeland, who had left his homeland to join the Philistines, and who was willing to fight against his own people at one point. Look at what the Lord has done. Isn't that awesome? And what's so interesting about it is, if we look at just weeks prior to this, where's David working for the Philistines? When all along, this was right around the corner. I love that verse in 1 Corinthians 13, 12, which says, we see through a glass a mirror, darkly, it says now, it's cloudy. In other words, have you, have you ever tried to shave when the mirror is still fogged up? Okay, I'm not the only crazy person that's ever attempted to do that. 
Yeah, it's not fun. You're trying to see, and you can barely see, and you're hoping you're getting it right, and a lot of the times it's just guesswork. And that's what Paul's saying here. You know, right now, we see through a mirror, and it's cloudy. And realize the context of 1 Corinthians 13 is he's talking about life filled with the Holy Spirit. Life filled with the Holy Spirit, we still see through a mirror that's a little bit cloudy. We don't have full understanding. When we're at our best, submitted to the Lord, we still don't know it all. We still don't have it all together. In other words, we don't see like God sees. And that means that things are very rarely truly as you think them to be. You know, there have been so many things in my life that have come up where sometimes life feels like whack-a-mole, right? And every once in a while, you got too many moles popping up for your whacker, And so there are those moments in life where you look around and it's just all these little guys are looking at you. And then you're like, I I can't handle this. I can't do this. And it's easy to look out in our own understanding. You're never going to forget this illustration. It's easy to look out in our own understanding and to become overwhelmed. What what does the, the writer say? He says, when my heart is overwhelmed, what is his prayer? Lead me to the rock that is higher than I. Lead me to the place where you see, not where I see. And so the problem is, is if we look out with even our understanding and at our best, filled with the Holy Spirit, we look out, we still don't see everything like God does. We still don't have all the information. And so because of that, I am not called to measure my decisions based on my understanding based on my surveying the atmosphere around me and how many moles can I get? What's the most important moles to hit? That's not how I'm supposed to operate in my decision-making. I am called to measure my decisions based on God's character and God's commands in his word, not my ability to read the situation. Because even filled with the Holy Spirit at my best, God alone knows all the facts. And so... David, look at what God had done. Look at what the Lord was doing. He should have trusted the Lord through the whole time. And then the whole debacle in Philistia would have never taken place. I'm glad he went to Philistia because it gives me hope. Because too often I'm in Philistia. Now, since David has been set apart to this special role as king now, it's time to get to work. And so the men of Judah inform David, saying, that the men of Jabesh-Gilead were they that buried Saul. So David sent messengers unto the men of Jabesh-Gilead. The first news that David gets about his kingdom is that not everyone up north is on the run. There were some who remained courageous, and they did what they could. There's a starting point, David, if you want to turn the tide, if you want to fix this mess and and find a starting place to turn the tide against the Philistines, there's there's a group of people who, who didn't run. And so David sends messengers to the men of Jabesh-Gilead. Now, David's first task is he's got to pick up the broken pieces of his homeland. And that means he's going to have to forge ties with those who were loyal to Saul. Those that might be concerned that he would take retribution on those who were loyal to the man who hunted him down. And so immediately David reaches out to the staunchest supporters of his enemy, of the one who was hunting for his life. These men of Jabesh-Gilead who risked their lives to take Saul's body and Saul's son's bodies away from the Philistines and give them a proper burial. 
He sends messengers to them, and he says to them in this message, Blessed be ye of the Lord, that you have showed this kindness unto your Lord, Saul, even unto Saul, and have buried him. And now the Lord show kindness and truth unto you, and I also will requite you this kindness, because you have done this thing. The word here, kindness, used multiple times, is that Hebrew word has said. It's God's loyal love. It's the Old Testament equivalent of agape. He says, listen, you, you have shown this amazing loyal love to Saul, this devotion to your king. And he says, blessed be you for doing that. And my desire is that God would now show that same loyal love to you, that God would bless you. The word there, truth, where it says, now the Lord show kindness, his love and truth unto you. The word truth here means his faithfulness. I love this because David makes it very clear to these folks who were staunch supporters of Saul that their love for Saul was a good thing and that he wants God to treat them the same way they treated Saul. And then David even goes a step further. He proves his genuineness by making them a promise. He says, and I also will requite you this kindness because you have done this thing. Requite means I'm going to do something to you, uh, similar that you've done to others. The word of kindness is a different word that David uses than loyal love. It just means a good thing, a kind thing, a, a gracious thing. This really special thing you did for Saul and his sons in recovering their bodies, he says, I want to, I want to do something for you. I want to repay that kindness. I love this because what David is basically saying to them is he goes, I'm going to be just as loyal to you as you were to Saul. He takes the first step. I'm going to fight for you. I'm going to stand for you. I'm going to defend you. I'm going to serve you in the same way that you have faithfully served your king. And then David invites them to join his fight to reestablish their homeland. He says in verse 7, Therefore now, Let your hands be strengthened and be valiant for your master Saul is dead and also the house of Judah has anointed me king over them. Listen, Saul's house is dead. Our nation is scattered. I'm trying to pick up the pieces. The tribe of Judah has anointed me. The Philistines haven't gotten here yet. I want your help in turning the tide. Let your hand be strengthened means be resolved. I know you took a lot of resolve to go rescue Saul's bodies. You risked retribution from the Philistines, but it's not time to chill out. It's time to man up. He says it's time to be valiant means you need to become the new mighty men. You need to become the new mighty men. And I want you by my side. I'm going to take the Philistines on. I want you by my side so we can take back our homeland. I love David here because he realizes this is no time for division or for rebellion. He's communicating to them, listen, I am happy that you were loyal to Saul. I was never in rebellion against Saul. And so we're on the same team and we will need each other for the fight ahead. So let's do it. Let's do it. I wish verse 8 didn't happen because I would have loved to have seen what would have happened if it didn't happen. (laughs) I would have loved to have seen how David, being the leader that he was, being the man after God's heart, how he reached out to those who were loyal to Saul. I would have loved to have seen what amazing things God would have done right after this. Sadly, though, we don't find out how the men of Jabesh Gilead respond because before David can begin unifying the kingdom, Opposition forms from what's left of Saul's family. Look at verse 8. But Abner, the son of Ner, 
captain of Saul's host, he took Ishbosheth, the son of Saul, and brought him over to Mahanaim. And he made him king over Gilead and over the Asherites and over Jezreel and over Ephraim and over Benjamin and over all Israel. And Ishbosheth, Saul's son, was 40 years old when he began to reign over Israel, and he reigned for two years. But the house of Judah followed David. And the time that David was king in Hebron over the house of Judah was seven years and six months. Abner, Abner is Saul's uncle or cousin. We're not sure what that word uncle is referring to. He was commander of the Israeli army. And so while things were going well for David, someone fiercely opposed God's plan. And so it doesn't explain to us how he survived the battle with the Philistines when Saul died. That normally would be considered a huge failure on his part. So I'm not sure why he still considered someone of esteem letting his king die. It's possible he wasn't at the battle, although that would be rare. However he survived, however he's still around, Abner is a man who is used to having power, and he was someone who actively participated in hunting David. And so Abner has no intention of throwing himself on David's mercy. And so he takes Saul's surviving son, the fourth son that had been left behind in Gibeah to govern when Saul and the other family members went to war, Ish-bosheth. And so with Israel routed at this point and so many people forsaking their homes in the north, Abner does not think it's safe to stay in Gibeah. And so he takes Saul's final son, and they both flee to the other side of the Jordan River. In fact, they flee pretty much as far as you can go on the other side. Mahanaim is way to the east on the other side of the river. It's right on the edge of Israel's border with the country of Ammon by the Jabbok River. And so he takes them far away from the Philistine threat, and they don't just cower there while the Philistines move into Israeli homes. He gets ready to fight another day. Verse 9, he makes Ishbosheth king over Gilead and over all these other groups here. Gilead is the middle region that's east of the Jordan River where he's at right now. The Asherites is the tribe of Asher in the far north of Israel. Jezreel is a region where the rest of the northern tribes, Manasseh, Issachar, and Zebulun are. That's where the war was fought. These would be the tribes that would be mostly affected. These would be the tribes that all fled across the river. Ephraim and Benjamin would be the middle part of Israel. This would be the part that the Philistines were starting to move into. They also fled across the river. These are all the tribes, basically, that fled their homes from the Philistine victory. They would likely be on this other side of the Jordan River with the king's son and Abner. And so when Abner makes Ishbosheth king there in Mahanaim, he pretty much, he becomes the king of all of Israel. I mean, yeah, Judah's and likely Simeon because Simeon's lands are inside the middle of Judah. They were loyal to David, but the majority of Israel is still following Saul's family's leadership at this point. And by doing this, instead of taking on the real enemy, the Philistines, the one who's invaded their lands and living in their homes, Abner's stubborn actions bring Israel into a civil war that will last for two years. It says here that Ishbosheth, Saul's son, was 40 years old when he began to reign. Gives us an idea how old Saul was when he died. He, he's not a young man at that point in time. He was probably in his 60s, late 60s or early 70s. 
But Ishbosheth, it tells us up front, we'll learn about his reign, but he only reigned for two years. And it mentions here the only group that didn't go along with this was the house of Judah, the tribe of Judah. They said, no, we're going to follow David. It mentions here in verse 11 that David was king in Hebron over Judah for seven and a half years. The reason it says that David reigned there for seven and a half years is because David did not move his capital after he won the civil war. So after two years of fighting against Ishbosheth's, the other tribes, David, after he beat them he and was crowned king by all of Israel, he did not move his capital. He didn't move it to Jerusalem until he conquered Jerusalem five and a half years later. And we'll read about that when we get to Second Samuel chapter 5. Now, obviously, you can't have two kings in Israel because Israel's not two nations, right? So this creates a problem. Ishbosheth and David clash. Now, David, what you're going to see in the course of this civil war, David never goes on the offensive. He never goes to take land against Ishbosheth ever. Everything is going to be instigated by Abner. Abner's really the power here. Ishbosheth is just a name. We'll see that later on too. But Abner is the one who makes the aggressive moves. And so in verse 12, we see an initial aggressive move. It says, And Abner, the son of Ner, and the servants of Ishbosheth, the son of Saul, they went out from Mahanim to Gibeon. Now, the servants here means these are officials. These are probably other military officials. So Abner takes a force to the city of Gibeon. Now, Gibeon has an interesting story. Gibeon is another Levitical city in the tribe of Benjamin. That's Saul's homeland. I mean, this is Saul territory. But the city of Gibeon in particular was not on good terms with Saul. In 2 Samuel chapter 21, verses 1 and 2, it gives us some tidbits into Saul's reign that 1 Samuel never told us. 2 Samuel 21, verses 1 and 2. David has been king for a while here in 2 Samuel 21. This is far after the Civil War. And it mentions in verse 1, there was a famine in the days of David for three years, year after year. That's a, a rough time. And so David inquired of the Lord. He said, is there something going on here? Is this us? Like, have we done something wrong? And the Lord answered, yeah, it's because of something Saul did. And for his bloody house, his bloodthirsty house, because he slew the Gibeonites. Isn't that interesting? He slew the Gibeonites. And the king called the Gibeonites and said unto them, Now the Gibeonites were not of the children of Israel, but of the remnant of the Amorites. And the children of Israel had sworn unto them, and Saul sought to slay them in his zeal to the children of Israel and Judah. Interesting little story there. Now, you got to go all the way back to the book of Joshua to know the full part of that story. Remember when Israel first came into the promised land, they conquered Jericho. Then they went and they lost against Ai. And then they went up the right way, defeated Ai, defeated Bethel. And Gibeon's the next target. Well, the people of Gibeon, they knew they were dead. And so they pretended to be travelers that coming through the promised land with made all their bread, you know, took the oldest bread, the moldy bread, whatever, like that. They weren't locals. And they went and met Joshua and Joshua said, what are you guys doing here? And they're like, well, we've been traveling way up north, you know, up by Turkey. And we heard about what the Lord was doing in you guys. And so we came here. And Joshua's like, how do we know that you're not, you're not lying to us? You don't just, not just right around the corner. And like, well, look at us, man. Our clothes are worn out. Our bread's all moldy. I mean, we've been traveling a long time. And Joshua did not, the Bible says he did not seek the Lord. And so they, 
they said, hey, make a treaty with us. We, we want to serve the Lord with you. And so Joshua was excited about that. Yeah, well, yeah, you can serve the Lord with us. <laughs> well, then they come to the next city and Joshua gets ready to fight it. And the men of Gibeon are like, ah, you can't fight that. That's our city. And like, what? Why do you lie to us? They're like, well, we knew we were dead men. Do whatever you want to do, but just don't kill us. We'll be your servants forever. Well, a lot of Israelites were pretty bitter about that because they were like, well, Lord, we're going to end up disobeying you. The Lord's, of course, we should have thought about that before he didn't seek me. So God tells me, he says, you need to honor your commitment to these guys, the treaty that you made. And so they did. And God told them, he said, well, you guys will be servants to the Levites. And they were very faithful. They were faithful to the Lord. Even though these were Amorites, they're not Israelites. They were faithful. Well, something happened when Saul became king. Many Israelis resented the Gibeonites because of that deception way back in their history and because, well, they're not Israelites. And so Saul, during his reign, he violated Israel's agreement with them and tried to wipe them out. Saul was thinking to himself, well, this will make people happy. This will make people like me. I'm going to wipe out this group. Now, it blows my mind. It's so sad that Saul would disobey God by not wiping out the Amalekites who were Israel's enemy, but he would be this zealous about wiping out a people God told them not to wipe out. But you know, as we study the life of Saul, what do we see? Saul was always moved by the optics. Always moved by the optics. How does this make me look? How does this make the people respond to me? Does this make them like me more, want to follow me more? Does this make them more loyal to me? Or does it make them upset with me? Everything was about the optics to him, not about what God said. And you know, my decision should never be based on what gets people to do what I want them to do. My decision should be based on what pleases the Lord, right? I'm an 80s, late 80s Christian. It's when I got saved in 1988. And so I was 80s guy. I'm a, I was kind of a, a, a well, a metalhead when I was in the 80s, you know. I had the faded jeans, you know, and the, the jeans jacket, you know, that you wore every single day. And that was me. And so when I got saved, that type of music was was not good. And so immediately I was like, I need something I can listen to that's not going to pour garbage into my head. And so one of the bands that immediately someone brought to my attention was the old classic Christian rock band Petra. And one of my favorite songs they sing is God Pleaser. Don't want to be a man pleaser. I want to be a God pleaser. There's a line in the song that says, I just want to do the things that please the father's heart to make my father proud that I'm his child before I'm, I'm done. So the idea is I don't want people to be the ones who pat me on the back. I want it to be my father who says, well done. That's what I'm looking for. And so that was not Saul. He wanted the pat on the back. So Abner and Ishbosheth's officials, and as well as a small army, they likely come to Gibeon because I would imagine the city was not really sad when Saul died. These people who had survived his mass slaughter, they probably immediately committed to David. They probably had said, hey, you're king. We're good with that. Saul's trying to kill you too. We're, we're partners in crime. So we go for you. So in Abner's mind, he's thinking, this is Benjamite territory. This is my homeland. We can't have anybody that's for David in our homeland. And so he likely brings this force here to subdue Gibeon. 
which means if they've declared for David that David is forced to send his own delegation to defend them. So verse 13, And Joab, the son of Zeruiah, and the servants of David, they went out and they met together with the army that Abner brought by the pool of Gibeon. And they sat down, the one on the one side of the pool and the one on the other side of the pool. So, I mean, I guess they had a pool party. The word here for pool means a, a reservoir. Uh, the reservoir was a common meeting place in the community. Jeremiah 41 verse 12 says that the reservoir at Gibeon was massive. Um, in fact, if you go there today, there's a hundred foot wide reservoir still there, still in use. So they sat down. They was not to have a pool party, but they did sit down to talk. Because where do we go from here? We got two armies here, two Israeli armies, and that's never going to be good. So they sit down to talk. But it's going to become clear that both sides are itching for a fight. I love what David Guzik says about Abner and Joab. He says, Abner and Joab were each tough, mean military men who were completely devoted to their cause. When you talk about Abner and you talk about Joab, these are two individuals who are absolutely no nonsense, all right? These guys are like, if I got to fight, I'll fight. I don't care who you are, I'll kill you. It's just, that's their mindset. If you're in my way, you're in my way and you need to be moved out of my way. That is how they understand things. They see obstacle, go take out the obstacle. They are simple men and they are not nice guys. These are warriors. And so despite being close friends, there's no way this is going to end via a discussion. Abner made his intentions clear when he made Ishbosheth king. David cannot exist. This has been In the Word with Pastor Will Ramirez, a ministry of Calvary Chapel of Orlando. You can listen to all of Pastor Will's sermons and find other valuable resources online at www.calvarychapelorlando.com or on the Calvary Chapel Orlando app, available on iTunes and Google Play. If you have any spiritual or physical needs, please contact us. We would love to pray for you and assist you in any way we can. You can reach us at 407-523-0800 during our office hours, Tuesday through Friday, 9 a.m. to 4 p.m. Thank you for joining us today. We will see you next time as we continue to learn, walk, and live in the Word. Three-star general, Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal record to the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com, salemnow.com.